the shit you love. The podcast of the series of the graphic novel of the album where I get to crap on about anything I like. Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of Damien Cow Shoots Off at the Mouth. Thanks for hanging in there, dear listener. This week's episode of the web series features the song Don't Bring Me Down Proust. The episode is kind of about extremism, I guess. Extremism always starts with a humble idea which fuckwits pick up, distort and run with. In our story, Jessie's girl's personal vendetta about the past is turned into something she never intended. You're only as good as your fans. At this point, I'd like to break from tradition and mention that a certain other band had a song called Play Mistral for me, which made that very assertion. The only reason I'm bringing this up is that I would like to mount a small, pathetic defence for a particular not-very-good pun in the lyric, which goes... As a Mistral employee once told me, you're only as good as your fans. As a Mistral employee once told me, you're only as good as your fans. At the time this song was written, Mistral, the fan company, was in the news because of a particular model fan which was being recalled due to catching fire with tragic repercussions. So the line was meant to be topical. Unfortunately, the song was released a couple of years after it was written, by which time the topicality of the reference was completely lost, leaving only a shithouse pun. The title Play Mistral for Me was also deliberately selected because the Clint Eastwood movie Play Misty for Me was about an obsessive and murderously stalking fan. The movie came out 25 years before the release of this song, so most people wouldn't have known that either. All they saw was a shit-house song title. I know, nobody cares. I just wanted to put that on the record for my own nitpicking satisfaction. Anyway, followers sometimes distort the message of their idols. It's one of the fascinating things about fame. At the lowest basement car park level of fame, I've seen this myself. People who say they like you, yet completely don't get what you're about. Fame is generally pretty good, But it gets weird when you're confronted with this dilemma. What's it feel like to be loved by people you hate? This explains why some bands get all funny when they get popular. They stop playing the hit single. They turn into Radiohead. They bite the hand that feeds. While I don't condone petulant behaviour, I do understand how it happens. You start a band and your friends come along and if you're lucky you get a bit more popular because people who think like you and listen to the same music as you and have the same opinions as you start coming along too. It's like a friendship group which gets bigger. But what happens if you have a really big hit? Mainstream success. And the perils of mainstream success are just down to the law of averages. You get bigger and bigger, sooner or later... The fuckwits are going to turn up. Imagine being Kurt Cobain. His music was an uncompromising howl of pain. Yet overnight, he becomes the pin-up boy for clan-loving Huey Lewis fans in nowhere, Oklahoma. That's a real place, by the way. The perils of fame, of course, 
never bothered Kestrel Hawk. As you might remember, by the end of my less-than-rose-tinted school career, Kestrel Hawk had flown its last anatomically impossible flight. As I burst from Merida College's gates into the real world, actually it you know, never had gates, just a cyclone fence you'd scale to go and play on the freeway. So anyway, as I hit the freeway to freedom, a whole new bunch of musical worlds was out there, and that freeway led me eventually to punk. I mentioned last episode that I was a late adopter, intensely suspicious of fads. And that's what punk seemed like when I first heard about it, probably on some current affairs show about a dangerous, violent movement of dispossessed youth in London who were plunging razor blades into their cheeks, spitting at each other, swearing on British television and doing a ridiculous up-and-down-on-the-spot dance called the pogo to bands who couldn't even play their instruments. When the media is trying to frighten old people, which is pretty much all the time, you should stop listening. But impressionable me believed it was a stupid fad. Not a good start. I saw my first punk band in 1977. That sounds like I was hip to the zeitgeist, doesn't it? But the real story is far more prosaic. A real punk band came out to Glen Waverley. That never happened back in 77, but that's how it happened. Some local guys ran an occasional gig in a hall in Glen Waverley for unknown bands who wanted to play original music. It was called Breakfast with Buddha, which gives you some idea of the clientele and the kinds of bands that played. Strictly long hair, cross-legged on the floor, head-nodding kind of stuff. For us in Kestrel Hawk, Breakfast with Buddha was Everest. If only we could get a gig there, we thought. Imagine it. We could play our own stuff without having to make people dance to status quo covers, and everyone would see how fantastic we were. Trouble was, Breakfast with Buddha was more of a myth than an actual gig, like some kind of a legal rave. You never knew when or where it might turn up, if ever. And then one day at school, we heard from a guy who knew a guy who had a paper flyer. Breakfast with Buddha was on next Saturday. We raced there with breathless anticipation, masked by a look of haughty indifference, to check out, and most likely sneer at, the opposition. And there, first on the bill, was a band called The Reels. No, not Dave Mason and his famous double E reels from Dubbo. This was the snooty Melbourneian version of The Reels, straight out of our very own punk mecca, St Kilda. And they had the look and the sound lifted perfectly out of the punk rule book. Short spiky hair, skinny trousers, ripped shirt, who knows, probably razor blades in there somewhere. Every song was Ramones length, the guitar was fuzzed out beyond recognition, the singer had black lipstick and eye makeup and jumped off the stage to crawl around on the floor in front of us. It was the first time I ever saw that happen. The second was when I saw Nick Cave do it. Pretty impressive. Until I found out about Iggy Pop, that is. In fact, the singer from The Reels looked exactly like Iggy Pop does on the cover of Raw Power. His name was Gary Gray, and he would go on to front a short-lived Melbourne band called Sacred Cowboys. (laughs) 
Sacred Cowboys, a band that I actually quite liked, who were managed by Michael Lynch, who ended up becoming my manager. Six Degrees of Separation, or Thirty Shades of Gary Gray. Anyway, that was all much later. When I saw the reels, I thought they were a joke. A cartoon punk band. I even did a cartoon of them myself. I used to waste time in class drawing a cartoon band by the name of Yuck who used to be Prog, and the Yuck logo looked like the Roger Dean logo of Yes. Now I gave Yuck a punk conversion. I see eventually a trendy London post-shoegaze band called themselves Yuck in 2010. Well, fellas, I was 30 years ahead of you. I should have persisted with Yuck as a band name. Sure would have been better than the ones we came up with. My cartoon punk band Yuck displayed what I thought of the reels. There were two reasons for that. One, I was a conservative, narrow-minded, late adopter who believed that musical talent was the measure of musical quality. I was wrong about that. The other reason, I'm not sure I was so wrong about. To me, the reels inspired a cartoon because they themselves were a caricature. The clothes, the hair, the buzzsaw guitar songs that sounded like the Saints I'm Stranded. Dedicated followers of fashion. What was some band in suburban Australia doing pretending to be like kids from London we'd seen on the telly? It seemed phony to me. Whether kids from London or Richard Hell in New York or maybe the Saints or the Stooges back in 1970 were responsible for the idea of punk... You can debate that question forever. Their message, okay, saying they had a message is a bit far-fetched, but anyway, they were surely saying, this is me, no one else, I don't fit in. Non-conformity. So, what happens? Followers appear, and suddenly we have a movement, which means a set of commandments that thou shalt follow. You're only as good as your fans. The other thing I didn't get about punk was that everyone seemed to be acting like dumb thugs. What's the fucking attraction with dumb thugs? Had they ever met one? You should pop out to Springy and meet a real dumb thug. I spent my entire teenagerhood trying to escape them. Punk was supposedly a howl of rage from the dispossessed. But our version of punk came from St Kilda, home of rich people or their sons and daughters slumming it. You don't meet dumb thugs at Caulfield Grammar. I know, I know, they all didn't come from Caulfield Grammar. But if you can't massively generalise, what's the point of having an opinion? The romantic allure of the loser held no appeal for me. My idea of a musical idol was someone way smarter than me, clever, talented, someone who could lead me to new insights. I was only interested in dumb thugs pretending to be intelligent, not the other way around. So, I thought, without really bothering to give it much effort, that punk was a silly fad. 
And in the grand scheme of things, punk did have a faddishly short shelf life. Even giving it a name killed it at birth. But it certainly had an effect. It was like rock and roll part two. The idea that a line was drawn and the music that came before it was no longer any good. It was its own little musical version of the Spanish Inquisition or the French Revolution. And there were plenty of Robespierre's ready to man the guillotine, your friendly neighbourhood punk jihadists. The guitarist from The Reels was a guy called Ollie Olson, And though I didn't know him, I have a feeling he would have been a punk jihadist, ready to denounce the infidel. He was a famous name in the Melbourne punk scene. And a decade later, that other band of mine played one of its first gigs supporting Ollie's Orchestra of Skin and Bone at the Aberdeen Hotel in Fitzroy. Don't remember actually meeting Ollie, but I do know there was some incident where he denounced us on stage in between moments of cutting himself with glass in the time-honoured I-live-for-my-art kind of way. Circa Iggy Pop, 1970. Your punk jihadist was never going to like that other band of mine. Punk didn't last, but the jihad did. It set up the idea of a schism between ideologically sound and unsound that would continue throughout the 80s and 90s in the form of the great divide between mainstream and alternative or independent. Back in the late 70s, a bunch of punk pretenders from St Kilda and Fitzroy didn't scare anybody much. But when punk blamanged into New Wave, bands like The Police and The Cars hit pay dirt. Now, the record companies took notice. Now, the jihad was backed by serious corporate dollar. And that's when it got really silly. Everyone in showbiz will reach the point of irrelevance. Public opinion will decide this, or someone will decide it for them. It can come after one song or a 40-year career. There's a million permutations. But imagine just pinning the tail on the donkey, choosing a date in the calendar and saying everyone, good or bad, who came before that date is now irrelevant. That's what it felt like when New Wave hit the big time. I completely understand the original purist punk jihad set out to reclaim the spirit of rock from rich, bloated superstars like Pink Floyd and Rod Stewart and the Eagles, who had completely lost touch with their audience and were living a jet-set existence none of us could relate to. That sort of made sense. But by the time we got to the end of the 70s, it had Chinese whispered into something much more trivial. If you don't cut your hair, wear a skinny tie and skinny pants and put a little punky vibe into your song, you became yesterday's fish and chip paper, mate. How must it have felt for artists from the earlier part of the decade, people who had made good music and were most likely still making good music, to suddenly find themselves arbitrarily on the trash heap? You wouldn't blame them for feeling a little bitter. And the really funny but kind of sad bit was when bands on the wrong side of the dividing line decided, if you can't beat them, join them. Some got away with it. The Keystone Angels were a long-haired 50s revivalist boogie band. Chantilly lace and a bird of face and a ponytail hanging down. But then they heard the blowing of the wind. Like Robert Johnson at the crossroads, 
they suddenly re-emerged as the Angels. The Angels, like Cole Chisel, I reckon, get a bad rep because you're only as good as your fans. Cole Chisel shouldn't be blamed for K-San becoming the theme song for cricket team alcohol poisoning, and neither should the Angels be blamed for No Way Get Fucked Fuck Off, which is probably how they'll be remembered in years to come. I saw the Angels a lot in 78 and 79, and yes, I was an outer suburban yob. But they were truly compelling. They took some good bits from punk, speed and simplicity, but didn't follow all the other rules you were supposed to, like dumbing down the lyrics. Their simplicity was not being shit at your instrument, it was stripping down the sound until it was laser-focused. And Doc Neeson was, along with Peter Garrett, a frontman so thrilling to watch that you'd momentarily forget the constant threat of getting beaten up by other outer suburban yobs who wanted to be punk but thought the boys next door were a bunch of fucking sheilas. The Rolling Stone album guide from 1983 described the Angels' sound as an explosive, almost hysterical energy being barely contained. So much rock writing is disappointingly shit, but that description paints a pretty evocative picture. The trouble with bands who develop such a distinctive sound, however, is that eventually they become trapped by it. And the people who don't want them to colour outside the lines are usually, you guessed it, their fans. Plus, I don't know if the Angels changed their lyric writer, but later when I heard songs like The Dogs Are Talking, it sounded like they let their audience write the lyrics. Anyway, for a few years there, the Angels were one of the biggest bands in the country because they saw the new wave coming and traded in their outdated surfboard for a much better one. Some didn't. Supernaut, named after a Black Sabbath song, were a bare-chest Robert Planty glam metal band who'd been on Countdown in 1976 with the hilariously uncontroversial I like it both ways. I like it. Supernaut tried to go punk by calling themselves the Noughts and singing I Don't Want to Be Unemployed. In the myriad suburban beer barns of late 70s Oz Rock, the Angels were the exception. The Noughts were the norm. So, okay, all this sounds like a savage critique of punk from someone who knew better. But no, dear listener. Just like Supernaut, I saw the light and became a punk convert. The whole new wave thing helped me, but then the penny dropped when I discovered some of these punks were in fact not so dumb. The album cover of Give Em Enough Rope intrigued me. It sort of looked like The Clash were... communists. 
and the Sex Pistols might have boasted the ultimate dumb thug, Sid Vicious, but they also had John Lydon, who seemed clever and genuinely angry. Right about then, I got that job in the city and went down a basement into Missing Link Records, and the floodgates opened. At Missing Link, there was a whole wall of shelves dedicated to... I don't know whether they labelled it punk or new wave by then, but it was a whole new A to Z of music I'd yet to discover. It was the secret shit. And dear listener, I bought the t-shirt. Now, via punk and new wave, I had a whole new set of role models. John Lydon, Joe Strummer, Paul Weller, Elvis Costello, Ian Jury, Howard Devoto, Andy Partridge and Colin Moulding. Sorry that there's no women there, but these were blokes I wanted to be, so they sort of had to be all blokes, if you get my idea. Right, so where was I in the long and undramatic tale of my musical beginnings? Well, it's the end of the 70s and I'm going through a series of musical conversions leading me to punk and new wave, the music that had emerged from the snooty St Kilda scene in Melbourne. St Kilda and Springvale were worlds apart, yet there I was, shopping in Missing Link Records, buying my little jam badge from a suspicious-looking Phil Calvert, drummer of St Kilda Darling's The Boys Next Door. Who could have predicted it? And who could have predicted that our new band that rose from the ashes of Kestrel Hawk would become a St Kilda band? Well, technically. The original Peter had drifted away, so we had Sean on guitar, Greg the folk singer on bass and me on drums, plus Eugene on keyboards. Eugene's parents had a poultry shop in Ackland Street, St Kilda, and there was an old brick shed out the back formerly used for killing chickens that we took over, soundproofed and turned into our very own rehearsal room and HQ. We rehearsed and rehearsed in that shed, a St Kilda band by geography alone not an inverted commas St Kilda band. Nobody knew, but slowly, that's where we learned to be a real band. We needed a name, and I had an idea. My idea was to call us Mr Wapshot. After a bloke called Donnie Wapshot, who had proposed to my mum and been turned down, I guess I could have been a Wapshot if mum had said yes. That name was actually on the table for a few days, but we chickened out thought it was too silly. If only we'd persisted. Before Mr Bungle, before Mr Mister, there would have been a Mr Wapshot. But no, we decided on Tall Stories. God, what a boring name. Dire Straits, Missing Persons, Moving Pictures, Sixpence None the Richer. I've always felt that bands with names like that obviously didn't have the imagination to make up something original. And that was us, Tall Stories. The meaninglessness of that band name was apt. We were now singing and playing really well, but we had absolutely no idea which kind of band we wanted to be. Four people with four different ideas of how we should sound. Our actual sound was like a load of washing where you put the whites in with the blacks and reds. Comes out pinkish grey. If only we could have sounded like Elvis Costello and the Attractions. Only the bits I love.
Elvis Costello's lyrics were a huge influence on me around that time, but completely underrated in any assessment of his worth was the contribution of his stupendous little combo, The Attractions. Here's a snippet of the fabulous bass player Bruce Thomas. He's just a shadow dog. That sounds like a fart, but it's the kind of wacky little bass punctuation that Bruce Thomas would throw in frequently as part of his uniquely inverted role in the attraction's sound. Like another of my favourite bands, The Who, this was a band where the guitarist did not hero over the top of the sound. In the attractions, certainly on their first three amazing albums, Elvis Costello's guitar was just a scratchy rhythmic device buried inside the mix. The musical melody was carried by the distinctive, eccentric playing of keyboardist Steve Naive and the bass of Bruce Thomas. Towards the end of their time together as a band, I was lucky enough to see Elvis and the Attractions live, and I even managed to push to the front, right in front of Bruce's bass amp. Hearing what he played in all those great songs, sizzlingly loud through a cranked-up bass amp, remains one of my cherished memories – and possibly why to this day bass is my favourite instrument. In Tall Stories, Eugene had a cheap organ so we could sound a little bit like Steve Naive, but if your bass player would rather be Ross Ryan, you've got a problem. It wasn't our only problem. We might have moved to the epicentre of punk new wave, but we were no closer to finding the secret of how to make it. That epic journey would see us battle fire, and worse than that, the disdain of the treehouse kids. But I'll tell you more about that next time. You've been listening to Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. If you want to see the series or buy the music, go to campsite.bio forward slash Damien Cow DC. See you next time.